All right, good people, we're going to be uh, looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. 2 Chronicles 33 is what we've been looking at. Our sermon today is entitled The Tale of Two Kings, because we're going to look at two men who had lots and lots and lots in common. They were almost identical in their character. They were almost identical in their actions. They were two men that served as the king of Judah. But unfortunately, as the kings of Judah, rather than leading the people closer to God, they were two men that led the people of God into great and grievous sin. Similar in many, many ways, these two, but differing in one key way. And we're going to see that that one key difference that these two men had amongst themselves made all the difference in the end result of their lives. The two men we're going to look at is a man by the name of Manasseh and another by the name of Ammon, two kings of Judah. Now during the last three weeks of our time together, we've been looking at King Hezekiah, the greatest perhaps of all the kings of Judah. And you may remember from our studies that Hezekiah, he ruled Judah for a period of 29 years. He brought about great spiritual reform, great moral reform to the nation, and he brought the people back into right relationship and and to the proper worship of Jehovah. You may recall the king that was just before him literally boarded up the doors of the temple shut so that the people couldn't worship Jehovah. And he, he brought the people back. It was he that reopened the temple. It was he that reinstituted the celebration of the feast, particularly the Passover. And it was Hezekiah that destroyed the high places in Jerusalem and that were scattered throughout Judah uh, where the people worshipped the foreign gods. He destroyed all of those. Hezekiah was a great king that was greatly used of God in the nation of Judah. Unfortunately, as we're going to see today, his son and his grandson, they were not such great kings greatly used by God. Now the last verse of 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 33, we looked at, read this way. It said, now Hezekiah slept with his fathers. There's a little more information. And then it says, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. And we're going to begin today by looking at this Manasseh. Manasseh was just a boy when he began to reign. He was 12 years old, uh, 12 years of age. You can see in verse 1 there, it gives us his age that he, when he began to reign. And it tells us that he reigned for a period of 55 years. Now, during Manasseh's entire life leading up to his becoming the king, the first 12 years of his life, the nation of Judah, we've learned, experienced great peace and great po- prosperity. So this is what he was kind of growing up in, knowing he never knew a period of war, uh, if our math is correct, as we're looking at the life of Hezekiah. All he knew was peace and prosperity. These are some of the verses that describe his childhood, the latter years of Hezekiah's life and the first 12 years of, of Manasseh's life. It said in verse 27 of chapter 32 that Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. In verse 29, It says, likewise, he provided for himself and flocks and herds and abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. And then in verse 31 of chapter 32, it said that his dad, Hezekiah, prospered in all of his works. And Manasseh comes to the throne during a period of great peace and prosperity in Judah's history. And as we saw last week, that was directly related to the relationship that Hezekiah had with God that God was uh, blessing him because they were in, he was in right relationship with God. Now, despite all of that, curiously, Manasseh, look at verse 2, it says that he chose to do evil. 
And it says, And Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So you have this picture of, of Hezekiah being this godly king and Manasseh choosing to do evil according to the abominations of the nations. You know, sometimes children of even the most godliest of parents will rebel and they'll reject the faith. And when I see that, my tendency is to wonder, why is that? And sometimes I, I begin to ask questions. Was it something that the parents did? You know, did they do something wrong that the kid observed and realized, you know what, I don't want anything to do with this faith? Were the parents maybe living one way in public, but another way at home, and the kids saw that hypocrisy, and they, cho they chose to reject the faith? Maybe. Maybe that's the reason why the kid has gone astray, even though his parents seem to be these godly people. But I think we need to be careful making those assumptions, because sometimes kids rebel uh, because kids rebel. And sometimes the rebellion comes not as a result of their parents' influence, but in spite of their parents' influence. And so we need to be careful, because here is Manasseh, the son of the godliest of kings Judah had ever known. A spiritual revival had taken place during the days of Hezekiah and in the days of the parents of all of his peers. So it's not like you can say, well, he had bad friends or something. All of his friends were growing up in the midst of a revival as well. And yet, one way or another, that revival never made it into the heart of Manasseh or into the heart of his friends and his peers. And I think this is a lesson to the young people that are growing up here in the church. Some of us, we've brought our kids to church here since the day this building opened. Not this building, but this church, if you will, opened. And a whole bunch of us had babies that first year, and they've been here every year. And those kids have grown up every Sunday here in church. Some of you kids that are sitting here now are just old enough to start attending the, main, the adult service. And you've been here every Sunday of your life. And you've seen your parents do the home fellowship thing, and you've seen your parents bring you and make you go to youth group and all those sorts of things. And so you've kind of observed and you've experienced the revival that God has done in your parents' heart. And the question then becomes, is it going to get into your heart? Will this be your own faith? Will the truths and experiences of your parents be your own truths and experience? Do you own your own spiritual experience with God? Are you in relationship with Him? Has your heart been revived? Well, Manasseh's heart was not revived. And as a result, he quickly led the nation back to the exact same place it was before the reforms that his father had instituted. In fact, if you look at the passage, he led the nation further back than the errors of his grandfather, if you will, and he led them all the way back until the time before the Jews had actually entered the land. Now you remember, what we call Israel or Judah in this case, because the nation is now divided, previously that land was inhabited by the Canaanites. You know the story, it's, uh, it's given to... Actually, let me show you this. this look down to verse 9 for a second. 2 Chronicles 33, 9. Just skim down a little bit there. It says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed from before the people of Israel. You see it? So not only did he go back to kind of the bad period 40 years ago that his dad had tried to reform, 30 years ago his dad had tried to reform, but he brought them back hundreds and hundreds of years to the wickedness of the people that lived before the Jews came into the land. Somewhere around the year 2000 uh, B.C., so this would be about 
1,500 years or, or so before uh, this time period that we're reading about here, 1,400 years or so. But somewhere around that year, 2,000 or so B.C., in Genesis chapter 12, we have the record of where this fellow, this polytheist, this guy who worshipped all sorts of other gods, because that's what his culture did, and that's all he knew, it's what his dad and mom taught him and so on, this fellow by the name of Abraham, God spoke into his life and he said, I want you to come out of this place, I want you to worship me, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And so Abraham, by faith, rose up, he took his wife, he took his nephew with him, and they began to make this way to a place that God was going to show them where they would worship him as the one true God. That area of land was promised to him, this place I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you an area of land, and you're going to have multiple descendants, as much as the stars in the sky or the sand of the sea. That area was called the promised land. And Abraham, for the next 25 years or so of his life, he begins to make his way to this particular promised land until one day, as Abraham and his nephew separate because they've gotten too big, too many of them, there's squabbling going on here, uh, they separate there and Abraham is sort of standing there by himself. And the Lord speaks into Abraham's heart and he says, you know what, take a look. Look to your left, look to your right. Look behind you, look in front of you there, north, south, east, and west. Take a look at all of this. This is the land that I said you would possess and your descendants would possess. Abraham had come into the promised land. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, as it continues to move, you know that as Abraham's uh, children and his children's children, his grandchildren, the 12 tribes of Judah, they eventually have to leave that promised land for a spell of time. It begins with when Joseph is sold into slavery, a horrible event in and of itself, as his brothers deciding let's not kill him because we don't get any money if we kill him let's sell him as a slave instead they sell him off into slavery he makes his way eventually down into egypt and faithfully serving the lord as he is serving other people he eventually rises up to be the second person in the kingdom of egypt there and it's while he is the second person in the kingdom of egypt that a famine hits the land that very famine forces his brothers the 11 that sold him 10 actually that sold him into slavery to make their way to Egypt to buy food. And it just so happens that they have to go before their own brother, who they have no idea who it is, and bow down before him and say, Sir, we're here to buy food. And he says to them, I'm your brother, Joseph. You meant this thing for evil, but God meant this thing for good to preserve our people. And they would stay there for a period of time down in Egypt. They would reside there. Eventually, through a circumstance of event, read the book of Genesis, love it, I want to go back and do my devotions in it again because I just love the stories of Genesis. Uh, But eventually the Jews down in Egypt become slaves down in Egypt for a period of 400 years. 400 years. And we read an interesting verse. This is found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Because the people that lived in the land of Israel, those Canaanites, they're also referred to as Amorites, they're going to be mentioned in Genesis 15, 16. And it says, And they, the Jews shall come back here in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Canaanites, the Amorites, whatever you want to call them, those that lived in that land that would eventually become Israel, they worshipped and served all sorts of local deities. And they did so in all sorts of lascivious ways, abominable ways, ways that were uh, grieving and angering to the Lord, ways, honestly, that disgusted the Lord. That was the practice of worship in the land of Israel. And the promise is given here to Abraham, your children are going to come down to this land, they're going to live in Egypt for a period of time, and I'm going to keep them here. 
And we know it would go on to fourth generation, 400 years. They would stay here. Now, we might think, why didn't God just wipe out those evil people so that the children of Israel didn't have to be slaves somewhere and they could go back to the land? And the answer is found again in 1516 of Genesis because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The context of the verse is that the Lord removed the Jews to give the Amorites time to repent. They were sort of wicked, but not to the place where God wanted to destroy them. He wanted to give them a chance to repent. And as we see, he gave them 400 years to repent and turn from their wicked ways. And unfortunately, they never did. Sadly, they got more and more and more lascivious. And eventually, judgment had to come. Now again, looking at 2 Chronicles 33.2, that's why it's significant to read he did, Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out from the, before the people of Israel. Another way of saying that is the people that had lived there couldn't do more evil. That's how evil they had gotten. And now Manasseh has adopted that and promoted that amongst the Jewish people. That's how wicked this man was. Now if we pick up in verse 3, it says, and he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. We're going backwards here. He erected altars to the Baals. He made Asherahs and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven. And he served them. Verse 4 says, he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. Literally in the house of the Lord, he's setting up these altars to other gods. Now, there is some question as, does this mean in the building of the temple or in the courtyard area of the temple? And frankly, it really doesn't matter. But the consensus is that in this instance here, it was literally inside of the building that he sets up these altars. Manasseh had replaced the worship of Jehovah as the one true God, and he set up altars to foreign gods in the very place, the temple, that was to be dedicated to Jehovah. Now, a reasonable question comes up here. How could he do that? Not, not just like, how do you do such a thing? But in the sense of, isn't the temple this holy place? Don't we have instances where God struck people down for defiling holiness and stuff? How come not, there was no immediate judgment in this particular situation? Well, one explanation, and I can't tell you for certain, but one explanation is that the glory of God what the Bible calls the Shekinah glory that had filled the temple, had departed from the temple. You may recall in Second Chronicles, or yeah, Second Chronicles chapter seven, we were reading that when Solomon had finished building the temple, that he prayed that the Lord's presence would come and inhabit that location. And it says this: as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's the Shekinah glory. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Again, we don't know for certain, but many have suggested that that glory had departed from the temple at the time of Manasseh. The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, he writes of the time that he saw the glory of God depart the temple. And if you read it, chapter 10, verses about 10 to 18, it says that first it came to the threshold of the door of the temple, then it made its way to the gate 
of the temple, and then the glory of the Lord departed over the Mount of Olives. Read it there in Ezekiel. Now the question is, is Ezekiel, as he's receiving that vision, is he seeing something future? And many will suggest that he's seeing the Babylonian captivity, and that that was another like 50 years from there. Or is he seeing an event that occurred in the past, at the time here of Manasseh? I tend to lean toward thinking that he is seeing the glory departing in the past, at the time either of Manasseh or perhaps just before it. But one way or another, it's possible for Manasseh to act in this way, to set up these altars to these foreign gods right there in the temple at the seat of Jehovah and begin to worship these false gods. Now picking up in verse 5, it says, And Manasseh built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery. And he dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever, and will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they'll be careful to do all that I have commanded. All the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. And then again, we read earlier, but verse 9, it says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Now we read through that quickly. Let me quickly jump through some of those. Look at 5a again. It says, he built altars for all the host of heaven. Verse 6b and c says, and he used fortune telling and omens, and sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and with wizards. All the things that were strictly forbidden in the scriptures that I would suggest to you he was going to the demons to get his answers from. Verse 7a says he put a carved image in the temple. And then going back to verse 6a, maybe the most horrific of all the sins, notice it says he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That means he took his children literally and put them in the fire as an offering to these false gods. This was a wicked, wicked man serving as the king of Judah. In 2 Kings chapter 21, you read the parallel passage, it tells us these words. It said, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem, seemingly with the blood, from one end to another. There's a first century Jewish historian. His name is Josephus. And Josephus was writing the history of this King Manasseh and tells us that daily he ordered executions of the people within the city. Daily. He's killing off people. Innocent people, it seems, that 2 Kings 21 is telling us. Tradition has it that Isaiah came, we know this is true, that Isaiah came to the people of Judah during the reign of Manasseh and tradition has it that Manasseh had him killed by having him sawed literally in two. Reference seems to be made to Isaiah in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Manasseh was the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. And yet, ironically it seems, the Lord allowed him to reign for 55 years, which is the longest of any of the kings that reigned in the nation of either Israel or Judah. And so as I read that, I ask myself, God, why would you allow this wicked king to reign for so long? And I think the answer is the same reason why God allowed the Amorites 
to stay in the land for 400 years because the Lord desires to give everyone a chance to repent. The prophet Micah says this in Micah chapter 7, and as you read it, you see, look at the heart of God here. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Do you see the heart of God there? If God could choose anything to do today, it would be to go somewhere and show somebody mercy. That's what brings him great joy. And so he's giving Manasseh a long leash, 55 years, because he desires that Manasseh, and he desires that the people repent. He gave the Amorites 400 years because it was his desire to show mercy to those people. God doesn't just shoot down some lightning bolts and off Manasseh, but rather it's his great joy. It's our, the great joy of our Father to show sinners mercy and that they would come to repentance. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's giving Manasseh this long leash, as I said, to practice these abominations so that he can introduce all sorts of methods to bring Manasseh back to repentance. And as we see in verse 10, for instance, the first thing that he does is he sends prophets. He sends guys like Isaiah to say to Manasseh and to say to the people, don't do this. What are you doing? No, you're going the wrong way. Repent. God will bring you back. You're making a mistake. Judgment is going to come. But unfortunately, in 10b, it says, but they paid no attention. Sadly, the response was to shut up the mouth of the prophets and refuse to pay attention. And so what does God do? God goes to plan B. If plan A, which is to send prophets, wouldn't cause them repent, to repent, then he goes to plan B and he goes to plan C. And he needs 55 years to run through his plans to accomplish his purposes, which is hopefully to bring Manasseh to the place of repentance. And so plan B or C or D, whatever it exactly was, but the next plan here is to bring affliction. Look at verse 11. It said, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now the timing of what we're referring to is roughly around 650 B.C. The nation of of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Israel in the north, they fell to the Assyrians about 722. Here we are now, about 650, and the Assyrians make their way. They don't destroy the city, but they do take captive the king of Judah. And it says, you notice, they put him with hooks, which usually was in the gum, like a fish hook, big fish hook, and they put him on a leash and they dragged him out of the city. And they brought them, him all the way back to another city they possessed, the city of Babylon, which is, uh, I think it's some 300 or so miles uh, to the north, if I remember correctly. And they drag him there and they, they make him a prisoner. He's a captive. It's a d- form of discipline. The Lord has removed his hand of protection from Jerusalem and King Manasseh. And he's allowed the king of Assyria to relocate Manasseh to another place here. Now, as we see, this isn't the first time that God had to resort to this method of affliction to bring people to their senses. And I guess that's because it works. That the Lord uses affliction in our lives to wake us up sometimes to the reality of, you know, what's real? What have I been running after? What have I been distracted by? Sometimes difficulties are needed to come into our lives 
to wake us up. And again, I think we've said it many times, but I think it bears repeating that the New Testament very clearly states this truth. It says, my son, Hebrews 12, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Have you ever been at the place where you're just tired of being disciplined by the Lord? Well, just leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. Have you ever been to that place? Sometimes you are. Sometimes you just want to kind of go and do your own thing and you're tired of the conviction of God saying, don't do that. It's not a good idea. It's not going to help you. It's not going to be good for your walk. Ah, leave me alone. I want to do my own thing. Well, he reminds us, don't be weary when reproved by the Lord. He's doing it because he loves you, it says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he received. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Amen? Yeah. Rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's for our good. His chastening hand is not always the first method that he'll use. Normally, as he did with Manasseh, he'll come with some prophets. He'll come with a still small voice that'll speak to our heart. But if we keep rejecting and we keep rejecting and continue to rebel, then because of his love for us, again, look at Hebrews 12 there, then he has to take it to another level. And in order to bring us to our senses. Which brings me to the section of the study today. And I, I wrote in the E! News, I don't know if you saw, that I, I was just, I was really just blessed by reading this. So about three weeks ago, I was kind of reading through uh, this particular chapter again. I don't know what day it was, but my whole family was gathered in, we're, we're just like the Waltons or something. We were all just gathered in this back room early in the morning. Everybody got up early for whatever reason. And I was reading here about Manasseh and I read these verses. I was reading everything before, and I was like, this guy is a dirtball. He's a mean guy, and look how horrible he is and all this. And then I came to these verses, and I literally thought I misread them. I literally thought you missed a key word there, Greg, because it just didn't seem to jive. Notice what it says in verses 12 and 13, and it blew my mind, and I hope it'll bless us this morning. It says, And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him. And God said, forget it, buddy. Don't come here now when times are tough. Where were you when? Is that not what it says? Some of you don't have your Bibles, and you think it said that. But it says, <laughs> he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his plea, and he brought him again back to Jerusalem to his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Seriously? Are you kidding me? God, you would actually be moved by the entreaty of this wicked, wicked man and give him pardon? And that's exactly what the passage says. Isn't that something else? God had used this affliction to drive Manasseh to repentance. 55 years it took. I don't know how long exactly until this incident occurred here, but it took all this time but God was just waiting and coming up with the next plan and the next plan and the next plan so that he could drive him to repentance. Manasseh had learned the truth of Psalm 119. 119.71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. He had learned that truth. Let me ask you a question here as an aside. If, if, would you have listened to Manasseh's prayer? Or if for some reason you got to go to God and make recommendation. 
Manasseh came to you and said, do you think you could go ask God if he would forgive me? Would you have gone to God with Manasseh's prayer? Would you have recommended to God that he receive Manasseh back? Or would you instead have rejected his plea and given him over to judgment? And I think for many of us, it kind of depends on who Manasseh is. If Manasseh is some wicked person out there that has done all sorts of evil and wickedness, particularly if they've done all sorts of wicked and evilness against me or against people I love, if that Manasseh comes to me, then my answer is no. No, I'm sorry. You've earned your bridges, buddy. No mercy for you. But if Manasseh is me and I'm the one that has found that I've done all sorts of wickedness and I'm the one that needs mercy and forgiveness uh, and cry out to God with my entreaty, well, then I love this aspect of the story here. I love the fact that God is merciful. We love to think about the grace of God when we're the ones standing in need of the grace of God. The problem is having hearts that delight with Jesus when he extends mercy and grace to those that have hurt us. And again, as we said earlier, our Father delights to show mercy. And our prayer has to be, God, make that my heart as well. Not just to the the random person out there, but to the person that needs mercy for me and the person that has hurt me or my family or my loved ones. You know, as I consider the depths of depravity and wickedness that that Manasseh had descended to, and then the amazing grace that God shows to him when he repents. You know, I can't help but think of in the New Testament the Apostle Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul was actually a Jewish rabbi in the early days of his life. He went by a different name altogether. He went by the name of Saul. And Saul had you know, been aware of this Jesus fellow. He had seen what the disciples were up to. He had seen the movement rising and growing. Saul more than likely was one of the group that voted to have Jesus Uh, arrested and crucified and convinced uh, the authorities to do that, thinking this will put an end to this thing. Remember Gamaliel said, come on, haven't we learned anything? Kill this guy, the movement will go away. And Paul was there as part of all that. And the movement didn't go away. The movement got bigger and bigger and bigger after the death of its leader. And now they're telling stories that this guy has raised from the dead and they can't just, they can't stop. How many people seem to be coming to faith? There's even a story that Paul would be aware of that some guy, some fisherman got up and preached to thousands of people and 3,000 signed the card and said, we want to believe. And Paul's like, this is ridiculous. And Paul looks at him and he said, who's going to do something? And none of the uh, rest of the Sanhedrin rise up. None of the other rabbis and said, well, I'll do something. Give me a letter with the authority to do whatever it takes and I'll end this thing. And he began to travel around and take Christians and put them in front of them, in front of the whole crowd. And he said, you can have your life if you would just deny this Jesus. Or you can die right here. Your choice. And many of those people, Paul was broken about it for the rest of his life, many of those people denied Jesus to preserve their life. But others of them wouldn't, and Paul had them killed. And other Christians running out the door, seeing their buddies being killed in front of them because of their faith, they knew that it was that Rabbi Saul. And then Rabbi Saul is making his way to Damascus. You see it in the news, same city that is in the news today. Rabbi Saul is making his way to Damascus there, and the Lord intervenes. And he knocks him down off of his horse, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul doesn't know. He knows that this is some godlike vision here. He has no idea who it is. He said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus, the one you've been trying to put to death, and I'm alive, Saul. Go into his city. And so Paul makes his way into the city there. Paul has been converted. 
He's a Manasseh. He's a wicked, wicked man who's done all sorts of horrible things and he has been converted. And he's a new man. And Manasseh was a new man. Paul was a new man. Many of us in this room, we're new creations in Christ. We know our old life. We know what God has done to create us as new creations, as it says there in the New Testament. I think Manasseh is a great idea or picture here, our study here, Paul, Manasseh, or whatever. I bet more people, Manasseh, more people were praying, God, take him out. Just end him. He's, he's causing so much trouble. I, I bet a lot of people prayed that Paul would be killed, Saul would be killed, not saved. And yet God saved Saul. I wonder in your life if you can picture a person that is, is too far gone. They're so wicked. They're so beyond help. And they're in your mind's eye and you can just think of them. When was the last time you prayed that God would bring that person to repentance? Not for your benefit. They'll be nice finally and I don't have to deal with them anymore. But for their benefit. That they would be forgiven and washed and cleansed. I'm sure that person you have in your mind, his evil did not rise to the level of Manasseh. And yet Manasseh was changed. There's hope for every person. Some of you in here today, you might feel like that Manasseh. You might feel like you're that wicked. And you're beyond hope and help. And the truth of the Scripture is, look at Manasseh and tell yourself, I could be forgiven too. And I could be washed and I could be cleansed and I could be given a new name, as it says in Ephesians, and I could be adopted into the family of God because that's what the, the Scripture teaches as truth. So no matter how far away you think you are from God, and no matter what you've told yourself about whether, you know what, there's no hope for me. The answer is there is. And you can be forgiven. Now in verse 14 of the text it says, Afterward he came back to the land. He built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gahon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate. And he carried it around Ophel and he raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities. Now significantly notice this. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Here is an example of the fruit of repentance. How do we know what went on in Manasseh's heart was real? Because the fruit evidenced that fact his repentance wasn't just because he was found guilty he got caught and so god help me out please get me out of this one this predicament but his heart was truly changed look at verse 13 of second uh, chronicles it says then manasseh knew that the lord was god his heart had been truly changed sadly however verse 17 the heart of the rest of the people wasn't changed and it says nevertheless the people still sacrificed at the high places but only to the Lord their God. Now, what that means is they, they had all these altars set up to foreign gods all scattered throughout Israel. The Jews were only to offer sacrifices in one place at the temple. But hey, there's an altar just up the street. Let's just go there. So they, they weren't sacrificing to foreign gods, but they weren't following the procedures whereby God determined they should worship him at the temple. So they're wrong in how they're offering these sacrifices. They're violating the law of Moses. Here. It doesn't seem their hearts are fully changed as Manasseh was. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to, the, to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they're in the chronicles of the kings 
of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the Asher and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they're written in the chronicles of the seers. We don't have those. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Now let's just read the last couple of verses about Ammon in this chapter. It says, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father made, and he served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself, but, but this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him, and they put him to death in his house, But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. And again, like father, like son, but with one glaring exception. And that is that Ammon refused to humble himself. You have two men, both at a period of their lives given over to great amounts of wickedness. Both given the chance to humble themselves and seek the Lord's mercy. One did. Manasseh and the other, Ammon, did not. And again, I see a parallel in the New Testament when you consider two more of Jesus' first century disciples. These two are apostles, the apostle Peter and the apostle Judas. We know that on the night of Jesus' arrest and uh, leading up to his crucifixion, that both of those men as disciples of the Lord failed Jesus miserably. One of them selling Jesus for the price of a slave, the other of them having the opportunity to stand up with Jesus. Aren't you one of his disciples? And three times he says, I don't know the man. Eventually it says, with cursings, to emphasize his point, I don't know this fella. That's Peter. But we see that both men, after, uh, after their period of sin, felt remorse for their sin. But only one found it within himself to humble himself. Peter, Mark 14, tells us, and he broke down and he wept after looking at the, into the eyes of Jesus. He had humbled himself. We see a little bit later in the Gospels where Jesus restored Peter as they sat together on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. God was merciful to Peter because he humbled himself. The other disciple was Judas. And we see that Judas felt remorse. It says he goes back to the temple. And he says, I did a, I've done a bad thing. I've done a wrong thing. Take your money back. Let's call the whole thing off. And the rabbis, maybe Paul standing there amongst them, said, it's not our problem your problem now buddy he said well i don't want this money and judas throws it down so he didn't even get any money from this whole process throws it down there it it says and look verse 27 5 and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple judas departed and he went out and he destroyed himself or he he hanged himself and quite frankly i think these two men serve as a metaphor for all of humanity not just peter and judas but manasseh and ammon as well Some of us will be Manassas, men and women that are guilty of great sin. Scripture says even our attempts to bring righteousness to God, good deeds to God, and are you pleased with that, Lord? The Scripture says that there is filthy rags before him. And so some of us are going to be a Manasseh that are filled with wickedness, but will humble ourselves. Many of us in this room, we have done that. Scripture says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And many of us have done this on this side of heaven here. We've humbled ourselves. 
We've acknowledged our sin and we've sought God for mercy and forgiveness. But some of us in this very room are going to be Ammons. We're going to be people that have been, that, that the righteousness of God has exposed the wickedness of our hearts. But we will never find ourselves being willing to humble ourselves and seek God for forgiveness. Rather, we'll be guilty of hardening our hearts, just like Ammon did. And what does it say of Ammon as he did harden his heart? It said he incurred guilt and more and more and more guilt. I want to return to the verse I shared earlier from 2 Peter because I only read a small snippet of that verse. But the fuller passage, I think, speaks to this idea of which one are you? Are you a Manasseh who realizes his need for a Savior and humbles himself? Are you an Ammon who realizes his need for a Savior but hardens himself? 2 Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We read that. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, they will be exposed. You see, it's a, it's a truth, it's a great glorious truth that the Lord does not desire that any should perish. And so He's willing to use many methods to bring each of us to repentance. But please, don't misunderstand the forbearance and the patience of God, is what Peter is telling us. Don't mistake, make the mistake in thinking that the judgment will never come for the one who refuses to repent, as a lot of people make that particular mistake. Judgment will come for those who reject the extended hand of the Lord, the Scripture teaches. The Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 2. He, he's essentially speaking, he's, he's almost anticipating what people are going to say. So he's, in a sense, speaking to a group of Jews that refuse to repent. And in Romans 2 he says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So friend, if the Lord has been speaking to your heart about an area of sin in your life, or that your entire life is sin, it seems, well then I encourage you to respond to His prophets. Respond to those that He has sent to you before the affliction needs to come. And then hear these words. This is found in the book of Hebrews. It's quoted from the Psalms, but it's written about in the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion or as in the day of testing in the wilderness. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Today, if you hear His voice, repent. Let's pray. Father, we know how easy it is to distract ourselves from the voice that uh, you have sent into our lives to speak to us, whether that be another person coming in, whether it just be our own conscience, whether it be your spirit speaking just sort of gently within us, some old scripture verse we heard a long time ago, or some message that... Uh, someone shared previous in our lives, Lord. You use those things and you bring about a conviction in our hearts. And so often, Lord, 
we're able to shut that voice up. We turn on the TV. We get ourselves busy with something else. We ignore it altogether until it kind of goes away. And we miss out on the glorious invitation that you have uh, extended to us. And that brings us to plan B of yours, and then plan C and plan D. And God, your great delight is to show mercy. But Lord, we know from the scripture that at some point we need to respond. And if we fail to, then we depart this life facing a certain judgment, the scripture teaches And so, Father, I want to lift up uh, just each of us that are gathered here today. Would you know the condition of each of our hearts? You know those of us that have uh, come into relationship with you, and yet there's an area that we're holding on to for ourselves. Your voice has been speaking, but we've been ignoring. And today you're saying, humble yourself. Give up. Lay it down and take me up. And Father, you also know there's folks that are gathered here with us today that have yet to come to the place of asking you into their lives, of exchanging their lives for yours, of exchanging their penalty for the one that you took upon at the cross, of exchanging their certain defeat for the victory that you proved as you came out of that grave. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, the same way you've drawn myself and so many others, Lord, to yourself and you brought me to the place my eyes were just open my heart was open to believe Lord would you please do that work here this morning in the hearts of those that need you as their savior we pray in Jesus name Amen